0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, on God, Amen, we will continue our Bible study in Psalm 78, 78 will start from verse 37. Psalm 78 is actually a historical psalm, in which Asaph mentions the history of Israel. Usually, when we mention a history of a church, history of a country, history of a family we mention things that we are proud of but Asaph, in this psalm, he did not mention the things that the Israelites are proud of rather, he mentioned their sins and their lack of gratitude their unbelief their forgetfulness of the mercies of God, the compassion of God, and the many wonders that God did to them. Why he mentioned this? As he said in verse 4 from this psalm, we will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength. And his wonderful work that he has done. Actually, he is mentioning all these things for so many reasons. Number one, a lesson to us that we should not be rebellious like Israel. But more importantly, he wants to highlight how the Lord remained faithful instead of unfaithfulness. How the Lord remained gracious instead of our rebellion. And until verse 36, he mentioned that how God delivered them so many times and how he did wonderful works with them. He brought water from the rock. He gave them the manna from heaven. He sent them the quail to eat in the wilderness and before this he split the Red Sea, many many things but in spite of all of this as we read in verse 32 in spite of this they still sinned and did not believe in his wonders, works so they repented when God disciplined them when God chastised them they repented but it was a fake repentance from outside there is no change in the heart. As he said in verse 36, Nevertheless, they flattered him, flattered God with their mouths, and they lied to him with their tongue. Verse 37, For their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. So, the calamities and the discipline of God had the effect of producing temporary change. They became from outside externally penitent. They manifested a wish to know God and expressed a purpose to serve Him. But it was just temporary, not deep, not real. There was no change or repentance. And until now, many people when in danger promise God to change and correct their lives and the moment they recover they resume their old habits but God will not be mocked and such people will not escape his judgment verse 38 now he is comparing the rebellion of the people with the graciousness of God 38. but he, God being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. So the Psalmist now compares God's goodness with man's wickedness and says that although God scourged his people He did not forget His mercy Therefore, He did not chastise them heavily as they deserve Why? Because He had mercy on them and did not utterly destroy them God's response to their stubborn rebellion To their insincere seeking of Him To their failure to be faithful to His covenant was not surprising because this is the God whom we know. He is compassionate and merciful to both good and bad. As the Lord Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew 5 verse 45, He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. Asaph presents to us from verse 32 to 39, a remarkable and affecting picture of man's heart. In the same time, God's gracious patience in all ages. So, here comparison between the wickedness of men and the graciousness of God. We know that man's sin calls for rebuke and punishment. And we know also that the people when they reacted to the punishment of God their repentance was only temporary, external also we know that God's great love never gets weary why? why God actually, although He knows that our repentance is not sincere He still forgives our iniquity does not destroy us. Why? There is an answer in verse 39 For he remembered that they, human beings, were but flesh a breath that passes away and does not come again So, God's understanding of the weakness of humanity prompted his compassion and forgiveness that's why in the Absolution that Abuna prays, we say, O oh God, who knows the weakness of men as a good one and lover of mankind. So, beside that, the nature of God is merciful with his nature. But another reason God is merciful to us, because he knows our weak nature, We are just a flesh. So the weakness of man's life moves the merciful God to listen some of the strict severity which our sins deserve because the goal of discipline is not to destroy us but the goal of the discipline is to treat us to lead us to repentance Asaf said the life of man is a breath that passes away and does not come again. Yes, it is compared to wind, which moves swiftly. So the life of man is quickly gone. His days move swiftly on. Also, Apostle James in his Epistle chapter 4, verse 14, he said, Man is mere passing breath, a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away so one of the reasons why God is merciful to us because he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again so I have just explained God's compassionate response to Israel's sin and to their rebellion Yet Asaph, the author of the psalm Did not want to ignore Israel's sins Their great debt of ingratitude And their rebellion against God That's why he starts from verse 40 To mention the sins of Israel Verse 40 How often they provoked him in the wilderness And grieved him in the desert Yes Again and again They tempted God And limited the Holy One of Israel They did not remember His power The day when He redeemed them From the enemy So As God multiplied His mercies Israel multiplied The rebellion So In order to set the evil Of their ingratitude in a still stronger light, to learn from this, the psalmist goes back to recount the miracles which preceded and prepared for the Exodus from the land of Egypt. He will start to mention all this from verse 43. But from verse 40, he explained how they often provoked him in the wilderness, They were continually committing such sins against God and provoked God As we read in the book of Numbers chapter 14 verse twenty-two. Ten times they tempted God, the Lord says 10 times The word tempted means challenged God Can God provide meat in the wilderness? Can He prepare a table for us in the wilderness As we read in the same psalm In verse 19 They said Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? So this is a challenge Can God do this? Can God bring water out of the rock? Can God, that's temptation Do you remember Satan When he saw, uh, said to the Lord Throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple And the angels will carry you so here, there is a challenge to God. If I throw myself from the pinnacle of the temple, are you going to fulfill your commandment in Psalm 90 and send angels to carry me? That's why the Lord told him, no, I'm not going to do this. Because don't attend to the Lord your God. But Israel, how many times they provoked God in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. They. Tempted him And they grieved him God is grieved At our sins As we read in Genesis chapter 6 verse 6 Psalm 95, 10 Ephesians 4, 30, Hebrew Hebrews 3, 17 Many other references And again and again they tempted God Verse 41 Yes, again and again They tempted God And limited the Holy One of Israel they turned it to their old ways again and again because they kept on tempting God they limited the Holy One of Israel what does it mean they limited? they limited his power in their mind can he do this? can he prepare a table for us in the wilderness? so they opposed the power of God and doubted the power of God according to the Septuagint version they limited the holy One means they hurt him, they provoked him. Bel Arabi provoked him, hurt him. In verse forty two, they did not remember his power. They forgot all what he did in Egypt. They forgot the exodus, they forgot the split of the Red Sea the day when he redeemed them from the enemy. So the exodus redemption is often presented in the scripture as a demonstration of the power of God. But they did not remember his power which brought them out of the land of Egypt and crushed their enemies and which so often supplied their needs in the wilderness Asaph had in mind the great power God showed in setting Israel free from their 400 years of slavery in Egypt God crushed Pharaoh and all his soldiers He supplied their needs in the wilderness of Sinai So they forgot all of this It is such foolishness that Israel forgot the countless and most wonderful signs and miracles that God did in their favor while he was bringing them out of the bondage of Egypt As I said in the beginning, in reciting this history of Israel Asaph is following his own exhortation to the people as we mentioned in verse 4 we will not hide them from their children. We will not hide the wonderful work of God telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strengths and His wonderful works that He has done. Then as I told you from verse 43, He start mentioning all the plagues, the 10 plagues that God performed in the land of Egypt. So. After, and he said in verse 42 that the Jews forgot all the miracles God did in their favor when he was bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Now, Asaph describes in the following verses how God afflicted Pharaoh until he ultimately overwhelmed him and his whole army in the Red Sea, all of which is, you can read the whole story in book of Exodus from chapter 7. To chapter 14 so verse 43 when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink so Asaph reminds them of the plagues God brought upon Pharaoh and his people because of them and calling these plagues signs and wonders. Because the plagues were a special demonstration of God's power. When he said, rivers of Egypt, plural, turned their rivers, their rivers. We know Egypt has one river, the Nile. But by rivers of Egypt, he means the branches of the Nile that flow in it. This was the first plague of Egypt as we read it in Exodus chapter 7 verse 20 when he turned the river into blood and their streams that they could not drink. Verse 45 he sent swarms of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. Swarms of flies among them and frogs. This actually plague number four and plague number two as we read in Exodus chapter 8 verse 20. So the order here is different than in Exodus. Asaph did not follow the ten plagues in order. Only the first one and the last one he mentioned them in order. The first one turning the river into blood, last one killing the First war. So the Egyptians were attacked by swarms of flies, mosquitoes, which tormented them. And instead of fish, the river Nile got filled with frogs which invaded every place in their homes. And the piles of those they killed got rotten and be- became the source of defilement and sickness for the Egyptians. Verse 46, he also gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locusts. So different sorts of locusts ate up every green herb and tree, their crops on which much labor had been used to fertilize and cultivate. So, all of this were destroyed. Verse 47, He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. In verse 47, there is a reverse of order in which the plagues came. We know the plague of hail preceded the plague of locusts. But he mentioned locusts before the hail. Also there is an addition to the narrative of of Exodus in mentioning the vine. When he said he destroyed their vines with hail. Vines was not mentioned in the book of Exodus. So Asaph knew it by like oral tradition. That's why he added here. Grapes and figs, vines and sycamore are among the fruits frequently represented in the painting in the Egyptian tombs. So the point here, their crops were devoured by pests and their labor was in vain. And as the vine were the drink of the rich, sycamore was the food of the poor. So the plague of hail and frost struck both the rich and the poor. Hail and frost are not common in Egypt, yet God changed the law of nature to chastise the wicked. Verse 48 He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. And because of the wickedness of men, the cattle as well perished by the wrath of nature. He gave up their cattle to hail and their flocks to the fiery lightning. So, what is fiery lightning? This is to be understood of the fire that was mingled with the hail, as we read in Exodus chapter 9, verse 23, and ran upon the ground and destroyed their flocks. This is the fiery lightning. Verse 49. He cast on them the fierceness of His anger, wrath, indignation and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. So finally, to include all the plagues that He did not mention before and He omitted, so He says in verse 49, He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. So, touching on the most grievous of all the plagues, which is the slaughter of the firstborn by the destroying angel. Verse 50 He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague. And destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. St. Augustine actually commenced at much length on this verse because he reflected who are the angels of destruction, who are the angels of destruction. So St. Augustine touches on the punitive ministry of good and evil angels. So, that is the opinion of St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, angels, there are good angels, and there are evil angels, the demons. And both of them, God actually has authority over both of them, and both have power over nature, that evil spirits, sometimes permitted by God to exhibit their influence That's why he called them angels of destruction Again, this is the opinion of St. Augustine which can be different from the opinion of many other church fathers Just I'm sharing with you his opinion So, he said about the evil spirits They may tempt also, as in the case of Job and, a and also there are good angels can execute the wrath of God like the angel who killed 185,000 soldiers St. Augustine said even angels evil angels are instruments of the slaughter of the beast and the firstborn of Egypt so when he said the angels of destruction, according to St. Augustine, these are the evil angels who killed the cattle as well as killed the firstborn of the Egyptian. And he says, when God punishes the righteous with temporal penalties, he does it by the hand of good angel. However, other, as I told you, scholar and other church fathers, they said, The angels of destruction are not evil because of their nature, but because they are bringing destruction on the head of sinners. So, we have two opinions here. Most of the church fathers and most of the scholars said angels of destruction not, not because their nature is evil, but because they are bringing destruction. But they are good angels. Saint Augustine he said no, the angels of destructions are evil angels, and the angels of good they chastise the good people only. God's anger prompting him to revenge, but was restrained by his mercy. So although God's anger prompted him to revenge, but it was restrained by his mercy urging him, urging God not to destroy them entirely But at length he made a path for his anger. That's what he meant here in verse 50 He made a path for his anger Meaning what made a path for his anger? You know in anger management We say try to manage your anger to find a path through so, instead of becoming angry and express your anger at the person Find a path for. That's what God did Instead of actually Let his anger destroy the people He made a path For his anger As we read in, in verse 50 And by removing every obstacle That mercy had thrown In the path of justice God made a way For his indignation So Mercy restrains the anger of God So if we remove all the reasons that mercy are bringing, then the indignation of God will be expressed. So he made a path for his anger can be understood in two ways. Either he redirected the anger and instead of being targeting at the people He redirected the anger according to His mercy or made a pass for His anger He expressed His anger toward the wicked people As He said, He did not spare their soul from death The time of mercy is over He waited patiently 10 times, 10 plagues So the time of mercy is over Now it's time for revenge That's why he made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plagues. So he killed all the firstborn of men and beasts. And Asaf emphasizes the fact that after minor plagues had failed to touch Pharaoh's conscience and the Egyptians heart, God finally attacked the very lives of the Egyptians. So we can see here God's wrath came in stages upon the Egyptians with the hope that they would repent. At the beginning, He denied them the water to drink. Then He disturbed them by the frogs. Then He struck their cattle and crops. Finally, He destroyed the firstborn with no exception. That grief came forth into every house from the palace of Pharaoh to the captive inside the prison Then in verse 51 he said the first of their strengths in the tents of Ham tents of Ham because tents of the Egyptians because the Egyptians are descended of Ham Ham is the father of Misraim Misraim came to Egypt and from whom actually the Egyptians have their name, Misr, and Misraim is the son of Ham, as we read in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 6. Verse 52. But he made his own people go forth like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. So after the death of the firstborn. The Egyptians begged the Israelites to leave Egypt and send them away. They sent them away with gifts. They were happy to get rid of them. So Asaf summarizes the many years in the wilderness. The Israelites went out of Egypt by God's mighty hand like sheep. Sheep, they are weak, unarmed, harmless, inoffensive, but under the protection of God. The power of God was wonderfully displayed in the deliverance of his poor, helpless, oppressed people from the country of Egypt. And he went before them as a shepherd to his flock and he guided them in the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He kept Them together as flock from scattering, from straying, from being lost And directed their way in the wilderness So they went out from the land of Egypt with great confidence Verse 53 And he led them on safely So that they did not fear But the sea overwhelmed their enemies The Red Sea And he brought them to his holy border The border of the promised land This mountain which his right hand has acquired So in verse 53 and 54 Asaph speaks of God's providence and protection As they took possession of the land that he promised them So in contrast to their enemies Who were seized in panic And drowned in the Red Sea Israel had no cause to fear God destroyed their enemies The pursuing Egyptians When the water of the Red Sea Came crashing down upon them So the last plague inflicted on the Egyptians And it was the end of the captivity Of the children of Israel For 400 years in the land of Egypt And God brought them to the borders of the promised land where he intended to set his temple first the tabernacle, then the temple and to turn its mountains the mountains of the uh, promised land into holy mountains mountains of prayer where sacrifices are offered So they who came out of the land of Egypt actually did not enter the Promised Land. Those who came out of Egypt because of their rebellion did not enter the Promised Land except Caleb and Joshua. They reached the border but after this all of them fell. Verse 55 He also drove out the nations before them allotted them an inheritance by survey and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Many of the Canaanites' people were dead even before Israel ever came to the land, and the land was divided among those to whom he had made an eternal promise of the land. God led the Israelites under Joshua to conquer the old inhabitants who were most devoted to idolatry, and God actually banished them. As we read in Psalm 44 verse 3, they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword. So the Israelites, not by their own sword, by their own power, they were able to take the promised land, nor did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance. But after all of this What was the response of Israel? After all these wonders That God did with Israel And again there is a lesson for us Because how many times God delivers us? But again we go back to our sins That's what Israel did In verse 56 Yet they tested And provoked the Most High God And did not keep His testimonies But turn it back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers Who are their fathers? Their father who came in the land of Egypt from the land of Egypt and died in the wilderness because of the rebellion Their children who entered the promised land walked in the way of their fathers and they rebelled again against God They were turned aside like a deceitful bull. Verse 57 but turned it back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers, they were turned aside like a deceitful bull So they tempted and rebelled God the Most High. In spite of all the goodness of God toward them, they persisted in their old unfaithfulness. The Jews entered by God through the power of God into the Promised Land, but they proved that they are not better than their fathers, who perished in the desert, because they tested and provoked the Most High God by abandoning his worship and by serving the idols. The word testimonies, his testimonies, they did not keep his testimonies, verse 56, his testimonies means his commandments, the law of God and his commandments. They repeated the history of their rebellious fathers, practiced their sins and did not keep And they did not keep God's covenant. So, bringing along with them their corruption to the promised land, they came to be like a bow that sends forth arrows without a goal. That's what he meant by they became, they were turned aside like a deceitful bow. What does it mean, a deceitful bow? A bow that could not. Be depended on. Above, one of his arms is longer than the other, or more elastic than the other, so that the arrow would turn aside from the mark. God had a goal for Israel to make this promised land a holy land, but by bringing their corruption, they did not reach the target. The target. They did not fulfill the purpose of God like a deceitful bow. They sent arrows but in the wrong place. So the marksman would attempt to hit an object and would fail if he is carrying a deceitful bow. The mark, marksman is God here who wanted to reach a goal to make this mountain a holy mountain, this promised land a holy land. But because they are deceitful, well, they the marksman or God here, they did not fulfil the purpose of God. So this was the people of Israel. God could not depend on them, they could not depend upon, nor reliance could be put on their promises. When Israel came into the promised land, they often worshiped the gods of Canaanites. Setting up altars on high places and worshiping gods of carved images, as we read in verse 58. For they provoked him, they provoked God to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. So, despite the infinite goodness of God, the people tested and provoked God and did not keep His testimony. They were turned back and acted unfaithfully and moved Him to jealousy with their carved images. Instead of praising Him, they worshipped idols. High places, they set altars for the idols on high places and they sacrificed to the idols. So the Lord would have His holy place Remain as the only spot for of sacrifice. That what the target of God to make this holy mountain as the only spot for sacrifice. But Israel, with the intentionally and deliberately, they rebelled against God and determined to have many altars upon many hills against the will of God. That's why they were seedful book. I'll stop at verse 58 but I think this part is very suitable while we are ending this year and we are starting a new year because many times with the new year we make resolution that we will repent, we will correct our ways, we will return back to God and sometimes this resolution we keep it until January 3rd or January 4th, maximum. And then we go to our old ways. And God is patient, and God actually is long-suffering with us. But there is time when actually, as He did with the Egyptians, there is time when God's wrath will be inflicted upon those who rebelled against Him, and did not benefit from his long-suffering. But Saint Paul mentioned in in the letter of of Romans and said do you despise the long-suffering of God not knowing that the long-suffering of God actually to lead you to repentance? But because of your unrepentant heart you store for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. So that's what Saint Paul is explaining to us in Romans God actually is long-suffering and patient with us He wants to give us opportunity to repent but if we abused and did not respect and did not benefit from the long-suffering of God unfortunately this person is heaping for himself storing up for himself wrath in the day of rest so let us repent sincerely Not externally like the children of Israel. God cannot be mocked. So let's repent seriously. Return to Him wholeheartedly. And let us make this year better than the previous year. In which we get closer to God. Worship Him in purity and righteousness. All the days of our life. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.